week's episode is brought to you by Support the Mountain's Herbal Parasite Cleanse. This formula targets the small and large intestinal tracts and larvae, the most broad-spectrum formula available today. 100% organic, formulated by Dr. Mikio Sanki, author of the Esoteric Acupuncture Series. For 10% off your first bottle, visit shopyogahub.com and use the coupon code CLEANSE at checkout. Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzama, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Doc. Greetings, Christina. What's up? <laughs> I'm supposed to say that to you. What's up, Doc? <laughs> oh, there you go. Today's going to be an interesting show. So greetings, everyone, and welcome to Magical Medical Tour. Dr. Glenn Wallman, and I will be your medical guide, along with Christina today, as we travel through the healthcare galaxy and searching for optimal health. Today, we're going to be talking about a very interesting topic, uh, end-of-life care, dying with dignity. And we're going to be meeting with Cecily Hinson, who's the chief field officer in the Central California Coast for Compassion and Choices, and Dr. Debbie Weinstein who you met in episode 94, and we'll talk with both of them uh, about this very important topic, uh, end of life. But Christina, if anybody has any thoughts or questions or ideas, Absolutely. Well, Glenn, at any time during this show, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment simply by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. And you can do this at any time, and we will make sure that um, your comment or questions go to the appropriate person at the time. Or if you're listening to this um, on your little audio device, you can call us at 818-LET'S-TALK, 818-LET'S-TALK. And be sure to leave your contact information. Um, and again, we will get your message over to our special guest or Dr. Woolman, and we will have an answer for you. Thank you so much, Glenn. Uh, you're quite welcome. Uh, we look forward to those questions and answers all the time uh, and uh, conversations, knowing people are out there. That's great. So, Christina, you know, right now in California and in many other places, when you come to the end of life, when a person comes to the end of life, we have a few things we can do. Uh, we can tell the doctor that we either want resuscitation or no resuscitation. Uh, there's a few other things we can do, which we'll learn today, but we can't really end our life. Uh, according to the law today. And that's why we're having this discussion uh, with Dr. Debbie Weinstein, who was in episode four. She was in emergency medicine for many years, still in emergency medicine. She does overseas medical relief work. Whenever there's a natural disaster, an illness, or a war, she's usually somewhere around there taking care of uh, innocent victims. Please check episode 94 for a lot of her uh, history, and we'll be learning more about her in a few minutes also. We're also meeting with Cicely Hinson, who's uh, with Compassion and Choices and helping people dying with dignity. She was an educator and a counselor, and now she has a program. She's the owner of, well, let me make sure I get this right, Pathfinders Memorial Planning, where she helps people uh, at end of life and families dealing with people that are coming to the end of life. So, I would like to, at this time, on behalf of uh, Magical Medical Tour, welcome both of you. Hello, Debbie, and hello, Cecily. Hi, Glenn. Hello. Hello, ladies. Thank you so much uh -huh. for honoring us here today in our global community. 
Thank, Thank you. you. So as the medical guide, uh, Debbie, you know this already, but Cecily, what I like to do is tell our audience basically how we're going to go. We're going to hopefully learn a little bit about uh, you, Cecily, and a little about Debbie, and then we're going to get right into what's going on with this very important topic that's coming up uh, before the Senate for a vote in California, Senate Bill 128 on end-of-life care. How does that sound to both of you? That's great. Okay, uh, Cecily, I want to start with you. First, we want to know just a little bit about you and how you suddenly got involved, and I don't know if it was suddenly, but how did you get involved com with Compassion and Choices and end-of-life care? Well, it basically um, it evolved from the fact that I'm the, I've been a go-to person in my family and among my friends when a crisis hits um, to, to help them through it. So uh, the, that was the most um, meaningful to me. And the one that really caused me to shift my thinking was when my sister lost her son at the age of 25. And it was a, a tragic death. It happened at home. Um, I, I basically walked her through the post-death, uh, process, trying to, you know, the obituary, arranging a memorial, going to the funeral home, all of that kind of stuff. But what it really brought to my mind was the fact that people aren't ready for death in their lives. People aren't ready to die themselves. People aren't ready for someone else to die. And, and the fact that these conversations about end of life never seem to happen um, at a time when, you know, uh, th because it could happen at any time, it's important to have the conversation early and often. Um, and, and that's just really exemplified by the fact that my nephew died at the age of 25. So when planning his memorial, um, there were a lot of questions like, well, what would he have wanted? Well, you know, there was there were so many things that you know when you when a child dies in in their teens or early twenties, they're in a phase of their life that you're not communicating with your adult relatives anyway. You know, so you really don't even know your children at that point. Um, you're not as involved in their um, what's important to them, what they feel, and all of that. Unfortunately, and um, I think that 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 just exacerbated. The, the situation. So um, then that led me to thinking about how people die and the fact that um, um, the, the, that with the medical profession, not um, and you know, no offense intended to the doctors, but there is a, a tendency, um, there has been a tendency not to want to broach the topic of if you continue in this behavior, it could kill you, or you know, if you um, in fact, with my bro with my my nephew, he died because um, an unscrupulous doctor gave him some oxycodone, um, and he overdosed on that. Um, he had no need for it. He he was just one of those doctors. He's now serving prison time, thankfully. But um, it's just that it's been hard to have that conversation, um, honestly so that people aren't prepared to face their own death and therefore they don't plan. And if it, if it were like your vacation or if it were like your retirement, we plan all of those things, but we don't really plan to die when, and it's going to happen to all of us. And, and so all of us are 
left alone trying to navigate that. I'm sorry, I'm taking so long. Trying to navigate that process on our own. But um, that led me to compassion and choices because I felt that it was a piece that was missing from our toolbox as uh, independent-minded patients to say, if it gets so bad and if I, if the palliative care isn't doing what I hope it will do, do I really have to just bear it and just go on and on? You know, um, and I just felt that that was just a missing piece. And um, so I started volunteering with them in January of last year and um, became an organizer in July. So what is Compassion and Choices? Compassion and Choices is um, the largest and oldest um, organization dealing with end-of-life options, trying to expand end-of-life options. Um, one of the biggest services we provide is uh, end-of-life counseling. So anyone anywhere in the United States, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, can actually call the toll-free number, uh, which, of course, I don't have memorized. And um, We'll have it on our website. We'll okay, it terrific. It, it, it is on the CNC website as well. Uh, and they people can get answers to their questions either for themselves or a loved one if they're faced with a life-threatening illness um, and they're, they're in the final days of their life, if they feel like their wishes aren't being heard and helping them, you know, navigate through that process. Okay. That's one of the things we do. And the other one is to try and pass death with dignity laws in every state in the United States. Right now, there's uh, how many states have a death and dignity law? Right now, um, it's, it's authorized in five states. There are laws in place in Washington, Oregon, and Vermont, and court decisions have authorized it in Montana and New Mexico. There's no law specifically outlawing it or um, setting out its parameters, but um, the courts have ruled that people have the right to end their lives when they're terminally ill and that the doctors shouldn't be prosecuted uh, if they help someone end their life who's terminally ill. Debbie, how did you get involved with uh, Compassion and Choices? Um, I have been involved in the end-of-life program for years. It began back in my training and residency with um, discussing DNR and advanced directives and all DNR of that. DNR is do not resuscitate. Do not right? resuscitate, correct. And as Cicely mentioned, having the discussion with patients, with family. And then uh, fortuitously, I was having lunch with a nursing friend of mine who happened to mention um, an article that she saw in The Independent, which is a paper in Santa Barbara, um, where uh, Sicily had uh, spoken to the uh, newspaper folks and written an article, which was beautiful. And um, so my friend presented this to me and said, oh, you might want to contact these folks. It sounds like something right up your alley. So I did. I actually emailed Cicely um, through Compassion and Choices, and she got right back to me. And so we've been uh, in touch, I want to say, a good few months at this point. Um, yeah. Yeah. Excellent. 
uh, we're going to, I have some medical questions for you, but I want to get a little bit into uh, what's going on right now in California, because I think this is the important part of the process. Compassion and Choices is trying to make it so that uh, certain patients that meet certain criteria, and we'll get into that, have an option of ending their own life. This is Senate Bill 128. Can you explain that a little bit to us, Cecily? Sure. SB 128, the End of Life Option Act, was introduced by Senators uh, Bill Monning and Lois Wolk uh, January 20th of this year. Um, it is based on the Oregon law. Uh, the Oregon law has been in place since 1997. And um, it, it, uh, do you want me to go into the specifics of that? Not, like, not uh, yet. We'll get into that okay. in a little while. Just, just a general mm -hmm. concept for the moment. Okay. And it's, it's scheduled to be heard before the health committee, um, Wednesday, uh, March 25th. Um, and then, uh, they also have scheduled a, a hearing for the judiciary committee as well after that. So this is, once it goes through those committees, does it come to a vote among all the Californians? Is that the next step after that, if it passes committee? If it pa it has to go through appropriations as well. Once it passes committee, it goes to a floor vote in the Senate. Once the Senate passes it, it goes through the committee process in the Assembly and has to go to a floor vote. After it passes committees there, it goes to a floor vote there, and then it goes to uh, Governor Brown. Um, we, we are looking at the possibility and probability that we will... Um, at the same time, while the bill is moving through the process, um, putting a ballot initiative together for 2016 as well. Uh, so if it goes to the governor and he signs it into the law, what would the ballot initiative be? Yeah, if he, if that problem is, is that the process for this, for the law, um, if he, if he signs it, then the uh, need for um, initiative would be negated. We wouldn't need that ballot initiative. It's just that the preparation for having a ballot initiative takes so much time that you have to start gathering signatures and uh, and going through that process well in in advance of of 2016. So if we go start going through that process and the Senate and and Governor Brown signs the bill into law, then we wouldn't proceed with the initiative. You wouldn't need to. So you, we've been watching to. Oregon for a few years now. Uh, there must be pros and cons about this, or else it would just be a law already. What are the cons? What, what's the argument against something like this? Well, um, a lot of the arguments against this are uh, religious-based. Some people feel that... Um, it's that people don't have don't have the, that God is the only one who can decide when you die. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the rel religious groups are among our our largest opponents. Mm -hmm. um, and there are some physicians who just don't agree that this is a um, choice for for patients to make. And not, and um, but you know a recent poll shows that. Now, 54% of physicians agree that this, if if a patient is terminal, incurable, no and no treatment um, can help, that um, 
that they should have an option to end their life peacefully. The patient mm-hmm. should. Mm-hmm. Debbie? Still not a huge majority. <laughs> right. Debbie, let's talk about the physicians for a moment. When I looked at uh, some of the groups that are involved in supporting this bill, uh, students of the American Medical Association seem to be in there, so that gives hope for the future. But there is a conspicuous absence of the American Medical Association involved with this. When there was a recent meeting of hospice and palliative care uh, practitioners, doctors, nurses, etc., uh, it was felt that many physicians still struggle with the end-of-life process. <clears throat> they want to give their patients hope, but they don't even know how to effectively communicate when there is no hope. We get the point where, according to uh, the director of Compassion and Choices, Daniel Wilson, said something like, doctors often don't know how to fully tell people, I can't help you. They are taught that medicine is the supreme healer. So is that what you find right now, Deb? Most certainly. Um, I would say one of the things that the medical community does not do very well is have end-of-life discussions. You know, this is something that we unfortunately fail at, and whether it's lack of education at the medical school level or the residency training level, um, for reasons that are unclear to me, but maybe just because it is an uncomfortable conversation, and Cicely mentioned that uh, before, that it it doesn't happen. And because... um, your physician is not able to be straight with you and say, um, this does not have a cure. A lot of physicians worry that that is then mitigating hope, that we should have hope. But the truth is, um, we lack um, truly effective pain medicines for end of life. Not all surgeries are successful. Um, And sometimes our most well-intentioned therapies only make dying worse and add to suffering. And and as a physician and a clinician, I feel like that does more harm to our patients than uh, being honest about end of life and uh, what options are available. So we should be able to, as physicians, be able to come up with the actual sentence saying, I can't help you to continue living, and I can't help you with all of your suffering, but I can help you uh, in other ways, and that's the end-of-life possibility. We have to get to the point where we can say that we're not just healers, but we're also about quality of life, and we have to have that discussion. Is that what you're saying? I, I think that not only as physicians, but as a community, we need to understand the difference between prolonging life and prolonging death. Um, Of course, death is inevitable, but we just don't like to talk about it. Um, So on the one hand, increasing the education, but on the other hand, being upfront and uh, direct with your patients and and allowing them to know that it's a continuum of... um, choices. This is just one more choice in the continuum from palliative care, hospice care. But if we as a community cannot alleviate that suffering, 
um, you know, we, we refer to it as humane when it's an animal, and yet we cannot seem to do the same for our fellow human beings. Yeah, it seems like it's very important that we should have choices, and it's hard for me to understand totally, I guess, except from the religious point of view of uh, where we shouldn't be involved in taking lives. Although, I must say that in some of the cases I see where people that are against this are not necessarily against war, and they're not necessarily against uh, an execution uh, for capital punishment purposes. So. There's a slight mixed message there. How do you deal with that, Cecily? How do you work with the religious people to make this something that they can buy into? Well, um, there are a lot of people who hold strong religious convictions um, and but don't necessarily agree with their church on everything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Catholic Church, for example, um, is against birth control, but not all Catholics are opposed to birth control. Um, I think I want to um, state that, you know, uh, this bill um, is not euthanasia in the sense that we would do for an animal. You know, um, that implies that, that the doctor would be injecting or somehow causing the patient to die. That this, what this bill provides for is um, someone who is terminally ill and um, mentally competent, the ability to self-administer um, drug to end their life. Um, and that's where I think a lot of people in the religious community are saying, um, I, I actually think they would be fine if the doctor did it. Mm. But if you're, if you're choosing to do it, because then it would be considered a treatment option. Um, but if someone, um, and I still maintain that this is a treatment option where the doctor, you know, anytime a doctor prescribes any medication, it's a treatment option, isn't it? I mean, so. Um, yeah, except there's but, a, an implied concept that it's going to actually make uh, one better. Now, we can argue, I guess, philosophically, if suffering in life okay. or death is better. But, yeah, I understand your point as a treatment option. It's something that a doctor is doing for a patient, but not right. in this particular case, except being uh, they're offering the medication. Uh, so th- this bill, you know, it's not, it's not something simple and easy. Uh, people out there that might be thinking, oh, this is a slippery slope, you know, everybody's going to just be able to get medication and killing themselves and then a lot of other things will happen. There's a lot involved in this bill. When you read the bill, first of all, as you said, the patient first needs to have a diagnosis where it's a terminal disease. They need to be competent. They need to be suffering. And if they choose on their own to uh, end their life, has to be, uh, my understanding is that there's somewhere, there's a time-related process of approximately six months. So if you're going to die within six months, that's an option for you. It also requires that the the person has to make two verbal requests a number of days apart, about two weeks apart. Then they have to do a, a written request. The doctor then has to have another doctor, a consulting doctor, uh, agree with the diagnosis, agree with the fact that it's terminal, there's no cure, 
and that the person is probably dying within the next six months, they have to agree to that. Then you have to have witnesses that are willing to say that this person was not coerced and they're not doing this for any other reasons. And it still has to go through a very long process. It's not very simple just calling a doctor saying, send over the pills. It's, exactly. it's much more complicated than that. And at the end, as I understand it, when you go through all of this, everybody agrees, the two consultations, the witnesses, the signing of the papers, the doctor writes a prescription for the medication, the patient gets the medication, they have it in their hand, they still are not necessarily required to do it. If they decide that they don't want to do it in the last moment, they don't have to do that. So it seems like the uh, legislative people have really put something together fairly well. Uh, is there anything that's left out of this bill that people would need to make it even uh, a surefire process? Um, you know, it's a, that's a tough question because um, people uh, who are who are generally opposed to it will nitpick, and, you know. Um, I, people have said, well, the word compassion isn't in the law itself. Um, but um, the other thing, I, I, I really like what you said about um, that they're not compelled. It's true. They're not compelled to take the drug at any time, and they can change their mind. In fact, what I, I heard yesterday, that, um, that there are some people who, who definitely outlive their six-month uh, prognosis. Um, some of them, um, some of those who took the medication in 2014 actually, um, received the medication in 2012 or 2013, mm. you know, so they, so, um, uh, people will point to that and say, it's not an exact science. Doctors can be wrong about the prognosis. Um, but it's the same, um, guidelines that doctors use to recommend hospice as well, terminally ill prognosis of six months or less. And, um, you know, th again, you know, like you mentioned, the patient is under no obligation to end their life within six months. They just have that option. They already seem, they, they also seem to have some provisions in the bull, in the bill, sorry, uh, mm. to uh, protect people from doing wrong. In other words, if some family member wanted the medications and they wanted to coerce their suffering aunt or, or relative to get these medications from the doctor, it's, it's actually written into the bill that it's a felony for somebody else to use this for their own purposes. Right. So I think, so I think that protects us fairly well. Deb, uh, do you know what actual medications the doctor would be prescribing. We talked about the fact that the doctor would not be assisting in a suicide like a lethal injection, but what is the prescription and how does that happen? So the prescription, um, and I would actually, before I forget, uh, recommend um, the documentary How to Die in Oregon. Mm. Um, it's on Netflix. It is um, incredibly intelligently and compassionately done and shows the whole process. And so in Oregon, and I believe most of the other states, it is a barbiturate. So it's one of two. One's called Secanol and the other's called Nembutal. And these are um, heavy-duty sedatives. They're often used in anesthesia when you're undergoing general surgery. Um, in the past, they have been seizure medicines. Um, 
more recently, they are now being used for end of life. And the reason being that, that um, it produces a very calm, quiet sleep, and then your breathing stops. And then, of course, when your breathing stops, your heart stops, and then you die. But for the patient, um, it's essentially just going to sleep. And uh, it's a very comfortable way to die. Now, the, the patient does have to swallow it themselves. So that is key. Um, you can either swallow the pills or often what happens is they come in capsules and you just break them apart, mix it into a, a liquid slurry, and then um, the patient take drinks it themselves. Debbie, when I was preparing for this, and I, you know, I've been looking at this for many years in terms of you and I both worked in emergency medicine, and so we've seen our share of death, mm-hmm. and we see people uh, dying uh, acutely in front of us, number of things, and I've developed my philosophies about, you know, I don't want people to suffer, and I am in favor of all of this, but when I thought to myself for a moment, I have to write the actual prescription. Something went into my gut for a few moments that said, I don't know if I could do this. Have you worked with that? I do. And and I'm not entirely sure I could do it either. I, I think that we... Um, we used to take an oath to do no harm. I know that's no longer part of the medical school oath, but when I was training, um, first do no harm is a, a huge oath that I do take very seriously. Um, however, I also feel that as a medical community, part of our job is to help people, help shepherd people into dying, and that. If someone is suffering, that it is actually more harmful to not help them die peacefully than to sit by and allow them to suffer. You know, just because we have the technology and the machines and and all of this doesn't mean we need to use them. Um, If the law passes, when the law passes here in California, as I know it will eventually. Um, I, I will sign up. I, it will be difficult, um, because part of me does feel like I wish that we had a better system, but given that we don't currently, I would rather write the prescription so that someone does not have to suffer any longer. What, just out of curiosity, uh, looking into the future or looking into your crystal ball, what do you see as a different system? I think we have to start with education and we have to start early. So in medical school, I don't know if you recall, but I had one very brief course during the physical exam session about how to um, discuss death with a patient who was terminal. And that was it. That's out of four years of medical school. So starting there, we need to uh, educate students, medical students, on how to have the discussion and uh, do it comfortably, do it sitting down, uh, all the things that go into this. And then um, to continue that in residency, there needs to be um, 
I would say analogous to the recent uh, requirement for physicians to know about how to adequately treat pain. We're in emergency medicine. We're required now to have continuing education with with um, addressing treating pain. So, I feel that we should have further education for all specialties in how to address death and dying and have that conversation um, at great length. Cecily, uh, Deb just answered very well the the question about how do we change the milieu for the healthcare community and physicians. How do you see that we need to change the conversation uh, among people that are not in healthcare? That's a great question because I actually believe that um, one of the things that needs to happen is education in the community. Um, I would like to see um, perhaps a unit in the health class in high school dealing with um, a week-long, maybe two-week-long unit discussing um, end-of-life, not in the sense of, you know, what kind of treatments would you want, but, you know, um, what what do you want your family to know? What um, things are important to you? Um, And uh, I think that once people actually confront the fact that they're mortal, that it gives them... um, incentive to look at their life with a lot more purpose. Um, And I can't think of a better time than high school, (laughs) but, um, you know, for you to have that sort of uh, conversation with them. But I also think that uh, the community for in Santa Barbara, for example, the Alliance for Living and Dying Well, um, which is a collaboration of uh, the hospices and the hospitals and palliative care physicians, um, it's encouraging the community to complete an advanced directive, which um, along with that is uh, having uh, having that conversation with your family more than once um, and encouraging the fact that it, sh- it should be an ongoing thing because the decisions you make at 30 are going to be different than the decisions you make at 50 and so on and so forth. So um, I think the more familiar and comfortable we become discussing the end of our life. Um, uh, One, the more um, mindfully I think we'll be living our lives and the less trauma will be surrounding death when it occurs in our families and in ourselves. Thank you for this. Um, I have a a strong question. I mean, I've worked with a lot of people in sort of hospice and the elderly um, and families who, who are going through a tough time, you know, with illnesses. Um, so, so when I heard earlier about this bill that would be passed and all the parameters around it, it brings up a concern that I have, which, you know, some of the elderly that I've worked with, you know, who, um, who had dementia, who had Alzheimer's, and clearly they were suffering, clearly. Um, what happens to them? And I've also seen families with very young children. Now, these children cannot speak for themselves. You know, where are those parameters? And and have you, you know, experienced, does Oregon have a specific law for these individuals? Well, um, actually, um, one of the parameters or one of the restrictions is that a minor cannot um, access this law. So it's not available to children. 
And um, one of the provisions is they must be mentally competent. And um, so, unfortunately, it, it wouldn't be applicable to someone with Alzheimer's mm. either. Unfortunately, um, that's not to say that, that um, you know, the medical community might agree on um, another way to categorize um, some of these illnesses. But at, at this point, you have to be six months out from dying. And by the time you're six months out from dying with Alzheimer's, um, you're not mentally competent. Mm -hmm. um, Compassion and Choices does have a provision on its website. Uh, it's called the dementia provision, mm -hmm. and you can add it to your advanced directive, which basically states when I reach this point where I no longer recognize or can feed myself or swallow, I want you to stop feeding me. <clears throat> that would go along with other choices such as no feeding tube and no... Um, you know, hydration and no um, respirator and so on and so forth that people mm -hmm. would make ex uh, life-extending measures. Um, voluntarily stopping eating and drinking is the only legal way that we, that we have available to us now um, in California. So that means that if you are terminally ill and um, you are you don't want to suffer any further. The only way for you to accomplish your goal is to stop eating and drinking. And um, I, I think that Debbie or Dr. Um, you know, either one of you could answer as to whether or not palliative care would help them with that. I don't know. Um, but well, I, I do know that there are several hospices here I, because I have several friends who uh -huh. actually made that decision. And they went into uh -huh. hospice, and they stopped drinking, they stopped eating, and they went into deep meditation and passed. It was very beautiful. It's very beautiful, uh -huh. but it's to the point where that's that's very that's not easy to do, you right. know. And it's not easy for your family to sit by and watch you do, you right. know, because you know the body and the functions are starting to shut down, and it's it's a three day process for, in some cases, you know. It's not. Yes, I don't know if that's humane or not. <laughs> you know when it comes down it, to it. It's actually a, a a tough way to die. Yes, it, re it really is. Yeah, you know. So that's like, and, and you know, I've seen some parents who hold on to their child, and they just wish that they could like walk into a vet clinic and take the shot like we would give, you know, an animal. And well, well, let me just say that there are doctors who assist their patients in this way. Um, under the table and, mm -hmm. um, you know, against the law, um, but out of compassion. Um, and of course, no one's going to come forward because if they did, they would be guilty of assisting a suicide or whatever, the, yes. uh, a, a homicide. So, um, but we do know that this happens. Mm -hmm. um, and um, we feel like there's more of a chance of abuse in that kind of circumstance where things are being done undercover and under, yes. Yes. you know, in the dark rather than have something that is open and has a process for people to follow. Mm -hmm. um, a couple of things I wanted to mention um, is that this is a voluntary program, you know, that no patient would be compelled, um, no physician is compelled, and mm -hmm. no pharmacist is compelled to cooperate with this. I mean, if they have personal objections to that, that they can opt out. Um, and, um, 
I lost my train of thought there, but anyway, those that's important for people to know that is that this is not a mandate that that people must follow if they don't um, philosophically agree with it. Mm-hmm. So even and, if the bill passes in whichever state it might be, even if the bill passes, basically it is all voluntary from mm-hmm. everyone who who basically participates. Exactly, and the the oh, go ahead, Deb. Oh, I was just going to mention that there is training involved. So if you were to sign up as a physician, um, as a pharmacist, um, you are required to go through training and you're required to report each and every um, time that you write the prescription. And so it, it is quite the process. And imagine just for a second that you're given six months to live and you're also told it may not be the best of uh, possible deaths. And the hoops you have to jump through in order mm-hmm. to make this happen. So you can imagine, from to my mind, um, anyone who would choose this um, would not be choosing this out of coercion or um, there's quite the process in place and a lot that has to be accomplished within that six months, as Glenn mentioned, getting two physicians to say you have six months to live Um a number of things. So it, it is certainly not something you can just jump to lightly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And at this point, I sort of want to mention Brittany Menard, um, who was a California, California resident um, and uh, had to go to Oregon to access their death with dignity law. And her um, report of the experience is that she felt very valued by the physicians there and mm. that she felt that they were very honest with her about her prognosis that when she was in California, she none of the physicians would say this is going to kill you, mm-hmm. you know, um, and the way it was going to and But when she went to Oregon, they told her exactly what to expect. And that's why she decided that she wasn't going to do any extraordinary treatments. She did do some treatments, but, um, you know, but she was young. She had resources. Most people don't have, you know, if they're six months from dying, they don't have the energy or wherewithal to move themselves, their family, and their support system to another state um, in order to access um, death with dignity. So that's why one a big reason why California just needs to do it. Why do you think it is that in our species we have to have uh, an issue like a person? that you just described that this part of this became very prominent after this young lady uh, was diagnosed and moved to Oregon. It made all of the news, et cetera, but people have been dying and suffering for years. Why do you think it's still part of that process? I know that you uh, mentioned certain things before, but do you think that this is just uh, a stepwise fashion? First, we have to get this passed and then we can go to people that are demented without the mental capabilities, then we can move to the next step of someone who's under 18. Is it all a stepwise process? Is that the only way that as a species we can figure this out? You know, I think that the, what, that we have advanced so much technologically and medically so quickly that, um, our moral compass is spinning around. We don't really know um, what to think about all of this because something can be done should it be done um, are we telling people they, they shouldn't be alive or they shouldn't be alive all of these are certainly 
questions that we have to wrestle with. Um, but I, I, I think that that is what has to happen. I think that you have to, you have to attach um, the result of of unbridled technology, you know, basically, and see how it affects one person, you know. Um, and there may be other stories. They'll say, "Look, but it saved another person's life." Okay, but in this instance, this is what you know she was looking at. She was looking at being kept alive. Um, through tremendous suffering. And if she had chosen the kind of treatment that they were recommending to her, it would have made her, um, she wouldn't have been able to do anything. She would probably be bedridden from that point forward, but she wanted to grab as much of life as she could. So, so I think there's two things that are happening. One is, um, technology isn't necessarily good. Medical advancement isn't necessarily good, um, in and of itself. Um, it's time to sort of consider the patient and what the patient's goals are. Uh, and uh, and I really sort of see a teamwork uh, approach happening between patients and doctors now. Um, in the past, it was very much the doctors were and are still experts. You know, you're, you're the ones with the education. But because technology has allowed us to become more informed about um, medicine and our illness and um, the impacts of certain treatments. Um, I think that it's worth um, the doctors to have that conversation with their patients rather than um, just sort of stating this is what's going to happen next. Um, and so um, I think that, you know, going back to, yeah, it is a step-by-step. -step. I think these are important moral questions that need to be um, looked individually and um you know and they should be they should be widely um as a, as a community as a society um you know people will say well you know you're not talking about that many people that it's going to be affecting and that's true um in 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 the last year in um oregon um about well in 2014 there were a hundred and um uh, 20, about 120 people who uh, signed up for the drug. Um, and that's not a lot of people. But I would point to things that we as a community have decided to value too, like um, disabled parking. I mean, you know, we as a community decided that that was important for the disabled people to have um, a place to park that was convenient for them. And, um, and, and, and as we know from all the empty disabled parking spots, but they're not used all the time, but they're there for them if they need it. And I, I think that that was something that we wrestled with as a society. And I think this is just another one of those. Another part that's going into the bill and as it goes through the different Senate uh, mm -hmm. committees is a portion that will say that statistics need to be gathered as we do this so that as we do this just like we do in medicine, we have continuous quality improvement and continuous uh, evaluations. So the statistics will be gathered to see uh, how this is working out. And I guess there'll be some fine tuning along the way as we move forward. So one of the questions I have uh, before we go into some things like what can we do right now to help this bill, one of the things that I want to ask is, 
in Oregon, have they gone back to talk with families of someone that has participated in this after the process and, and developed uh, a dialogue from that? You know, I don't know about that specifically, but I do know that they keep um, a lot of records and um, it's possible to go to the um, Oregon Health uh, website. And if there is a thing um, available about that, then they it would be on there. Um, they do ha uh, issue annual reports since 1990, I guess it was 1998 was when the first year that they issued a report. Um, but, um, as to, I can't speak to whether or not they, but I would imagine they do, uh, but I just can't, I just don't know. Okay. In moving forward right now, we know this is going to uh, the Senate and it's also going in a number of other states around the country. Canada has already approved, uh, a law like this. Is that correct? Well, Canada has, um, I don't believe that they have made it a law that they have just um, said that um, that it's not, that it shouldn't be illegal. Um, but I don't think there's a, a, an accompanying law that sets out any parameters for that, how that's going to be uh, implemented. They've just reversed, you know, decades of their, of their thinking. Um, so basically what they've done is they've set the stage for a law to be written. Okay, so what can we as the community do right now to possibly ensure that this bill will go through in this state or in other states? What are the kind of things that we can do as a community to speak up and, and be part of the decision? Well, um, one of the things you can do is you can um, uh, go to the Brittany Fund org. You ask for your name, first name, last name, and zip code, I, I believe, and that registers you. I support uh, Death with Dignity. Um, well, actually, I support SB 128 because it's for California. Then you can further go on to uh, take action and um, choose your state, depending on what state you're from, and um, send a letter to your uh, representatives, your state representatives. You also can um, sign up as a volunteer. You can either, you know, generally speaking, you will hear from somebody if you fill in the uh, support form. But if you want to make sure that you um, volunteer, and that can be anything from, uh, you know, you don't, you, you can be an active, super active volunteer, or you can um, just write letters and emails and make phone calls. Um, you can sign up as a volunteer on the on the CNC website, and um, but the most important thing is to contact your state legislators in California, um, either by email or, or phone, or even stop by the district office and let them know how you feel about SB 128. And um, if you contact me or uh, Debbie, we can um, send you a list of all the uh, legislators on the Senate committees. Um, and then you can call them and also register your position on this, on this bill. So, um, you know, and of course, um, I'm obligated to say you can also make a generous donation to Compassion and Choices to help them complete their work. <laughs> Why not? 
Excellent. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, Cecily and Debbie, we're coming close to the end of the show. When you were preparing for being on this uh, interview, is there anything that we have not covered that you want to make sure is out there for the people to help them in understanding what this is about and how to move forward? Uh, I will just say that, um, as Cecily had mentioned, you know, technology is a double-edged sword, but, you know, one of the beautiful things about the internet is being, being able to look stuff up and then you go into your doctor's office and say, you know, hey, uh, I read this. And, um, if your physician is not willing to have a candid conversation uh, with regards to yourself or a family member who's been given a terminal diagnosis, then um, I would take it upon yourself to initiate that conversation and or maybe find another physician who's more comfortable having that conversation. But um, communication is extremely important, regardless of your choice for end-of-life decision-making. Um, have that conversation. Very good point. I really like that. Uh, it's important for us to realize that as physicians, we should be helping to direct the process. But if we're not, we should at least be prepared when our more informed uh, patients and clients are coming to us with these questions. Uh, Cecily, any thoughts that you have on something that we might have missed or that you want to make sure is out there? No, I like what Debbie said, too. I, I, I think that having a good working relationship with your doctor is key and to know um, where your doctor stands on things that are important to you. It's better to know now rather than when a, than when a crisis hits. And um, um, I don't know if there's any more important relationship uh, a person has than with their uh, physician. Um, and, you know, that you can have those honest, open conversations. And, um, you know, the doctors may say, I want you to take this course of action, even just on everyday little things like you should be on statins or whatever, um, that you can have <laughs> that you can have an honest and friendly debate about it or or maybe not so friendly sometimes. But, um, you know, I think it's important to build that relationship and to and, and not to not to. It, it, Recognizing that, you know, it's not a peer relationship, but it is a collaboration. Mm, very nice. So we're coming close to the end of our show. And as we always do, we ask each of our guests for a health tip. Deb, let's start <laughs> with you. Do you have a health tip for us? Sure. So, uh, yeah, in contradistinction to uh, the discussion of um End of life, I would say one of the things the medical community does very well is preventative medicine. And so um, getting your mammogram, getting your colonoscopy, doing these things that uh, we don't exactly enjoy doing. However, um, what is it? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So that's my, my tip. That's very good. Uh, we like that. You know, I always think that we should be uh, promoting prevention. And <clears throat> even for the point, I, and it comes back to the concept here, compassion and choices. Mm -hmm. So even if you get your colonoscopy or your mammogram and there is something positive uh, in any way, you still have choices. 
Just because you get some kind of a diagnosis does not mean you have to do something with it just because that's out there as part of the medical community, the therapies, and the technology. Uh, Cecily, how about uh, health tips? Well, you know, here I am. I feel, you know, two doctors, and so I'm, I'm not going to, um, I can't compete with you guys on health tips, but... Um, <laughs> A life tip. <laughs> <laughs> a, a, a life good. tip for me is uh, always uh, make time for yourself. Mm. You know, give yourself time to turn off and, you know, off of your computer, off of your phone, off of technology, um, just to connect with yourself. Um, it's so important for us to be, because we can become untethered uh, and and we don't do any, make any good decisions or um, do well in our relationships when we're not uh, grounded. So that's my tip. That's a great tip. I have to remind myself to do <laughs> Christina, uh, you know, this is one of those where uh, you're representing every person on the show. So w- what are your thoughts about this whole thing in summary? The the concept of having something like this, what it's going through in the legal system, how our community is reacting. What are your thoughts as a community member? You know, um, thank you, Glenn. Uh, Coming from the background, you know, which I was brought up very, very Catholic. (laughs) So I had to grow up in all that, uh, that area of, you know, like uh, no, um, um, I mean, our parameters were so tight in every way depending from birth to death. Um, and then growing and working with so many people uh, in the health industry, in hospice, and uh, being a body worker um, into the healing arts, I, I am very, very happy that, that this country is now, or North America, hearing about Canada as well, is really putting effort into, you know, uh, dying with dignity because, um, ever since a child, I have watched so much and I've always believed in it and to see it now, um, basically come to fruition. And, and it's interesting because I've worked with some cultures where dying is so well respected, you know, it's an honor. It's, uh, to assist and help. It's, it's, it's uh, when I was hearing um, what Deb was saying at one point, you know, being a doctor and making that vow to help to heal um, individuals. And then I think of these cultures where when they see an individual who is sick, who is, um, you know, ha- is terminally ill and how they just surround that individual with such joy and love and respect and honor to help them journey through this time as easily as possible. Um, and, you know, if, if I think it's our society and what it's become about um, the survival and, and having to, to live, and that is the most important thing is to live. And uh, however we do it, whether it's of quality or not, it doesn't matter. And it's, this is like such a, to me, it's like a paradigm shift in our society, and I hope that it does come to fruition 
Um, and I know that uh, the people in my community of like mind, because it's been a discussion for many, many years. So, you know, we will definitely support this and um, hopefully we can bring more people to watch this and support uh, CNC, you know, Compassion and Choices, and, uh, and make this um, bill pass. Yeah, this is well said. Uh, thank you for that. Yes, thank um, you. Yeah, this is very important. And normally on Magical Medical Tour, we don't take stands on things. We just bring out a lot of information. But I think this is a coming out party for me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm coming out of the closet. I'm taking a stand on, on the end of life. And we need more options and choices. And I'm grateful to our very special guests, Dr. Debbie Weinstein and Cecily Hinson. Uh, the Central Field Officer for Compassion and Choices for coming on today and sharing their expertise, wisdom, and experiences with us. We wish you only the best. I would also like to thank my teachers and my healers for allowing me on my journey, Christina and Segovia and Yoga Hub, for putting on this uh, new platform for educating people and bringing choices to people. Look forward to getting together again on Magical Medical Tour on our next episode. But until that time, I wish you all optimal health. And thank you so much, Dr. Glenn Woolman, for another fabulous show. And to our special guests, Debbie and Cecily, um, you have really, really helped us to become more aware of what's happening there in this topic, which is so very important and very dear to my heart. And of course, we would like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're always grateful for your continuous support, and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. If you would like to learn more about dying with dignity, please visit the website CompassionAndChoices.org, CompassionAndChoices.org. And please volunteer, make a donation. You know, they need to be supported. They are a nonprofit organization, and um, we, we need to get this passed. We need to support those out there who are going through um, an a interesting part in the journey of life. And if you would like to connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman, please do so through his website, glennwoolman.com, where I do do... Um, Highly recommend his metaphor square breath. And that takes us back to Cecily's tip of taking a moment for yourself and being with yourself. Um, I truly recommend metaphor square breath. Now, I'm very, very excited to announce to everyone that we have been nominated. This show, Magical Medical Tour, has been nominated in the 10th Annual Podcast Awards. And we hope that each one of you, we, well, first of all, we want to thank you for your magnificent support through these years. That's why it's brought us to this point. And uh, we would hope that you would take a moment to help us and vote um, for the show for these podcast awards at yogahub.tv forward slash podcast awards yogahub.tv forward slash podcast awards um, and there you will have all the information on how to vote and you can actually vote daily this is a very interesting system um, you can vote daily and every vote counts we also have a second show that has made it on um, to the show which is called flowing into awareness with our wonderful anatara who is a master intuitive 
um, that has also made it into the podcast awards. Uh, so we're very delighted and we want to thank all of you for your wonderful support. And if you would just take a moment to vote, that would be fantastic. And again, we're always grateful for any feedback, comments, and suggestions. Don't hesitate. Just give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Thank you for joining us today. And until next time, namaste. Is that if you shift the macronutrient composition of a diet to a ketogenic diet, which is used clinically uh, by Johns Hopkins and Mayo Clinic originally, you know, developed these protocols. Uh, uh, shifting the macronutrient composition of the diet can put you into nutritional ketosis. You know, that's that's very different than pathological ketosis. Mm. So nutritional ketosis is when your body is breaking down fats and then you elevate these ketone bodies